So the big question is this. How are candidates like us, who don't have big money donors, who are spending money out of our own pockets to get elected, how do we get our message out, raise enough money to win, target the right voters, and yet still remain true to what got us into politics to begin with? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Matt Wyatt, and welcome to Campaign Secrets. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Campaign Secrets. My name is Matt Wyatt, and I'm coming to you from the great Commonwealth of Kentucky. I hope everybody's doing well right now. It's July. It's hot. I hope you're spending time with your family. I hope you're catching up on the books that you promised yourself that you're going to read over the years but never had a time to get to until now. Because those of us who are candidates who are working campaigns, we'd be doing a lot of things different right now in a normal campaign cycle. Right now, we would normally be organizing and hosting fundraisers in person, not over Zoom. We'd be organizing walks door to door. We'd be doing a lot of face-to-face campaign time. And right now, we have to reimagine everything that we do in campaigns. We have to reimagine how we communicate with voters. We have to, to figure out where they are, they're at and how to reach them in new and creative ways. But those are just tools. It all still comes back down to how are you going to develop your message? How are you going to really resonate with those voters? And the person that I'm going to interview on the show today, John Rowley, is a longtime friend of mine. He's a Nashville-based Democratic media consultant. And what I respect about John is that he's in the middle of the fire. He's a Democratic media consultant in the South. And he's been in the business for 20 plus years. And he has seen the Democratic Party lose a lot of races across the South. And he has won a lot of races in the toughest areas that you could possibly imagine winning for a Democrat. And he's lost some tough races. And if you're going to learn anything in politics, don't talk to the ones who have the easy races. Don't talk to the politicians who always have won every race that they've ever been in, and it's been easy. Because they personally are fooling themselves often. They believe they have won their races because of whatever they believe they won the races by. The truth of the, the truth of the matter is, you never really, you never really learn anything unless you lose. You never really learn anything unless you've had those tough races in those tough places in those tough years. John has done that. He has the scars to prove it. He's earned everything that he's had. And if you're a Democratic consultant in the South, you earn everything that you have. And so this interview is uh, is one of my favorites. I hope you enjoy it. Well, I have the good fortune of talking with uh, John Raleigh today. John is uh, a Nashville-based political consultant, someone who has a specialty in, in putting together messages and delivering those messages for candidates. And uh, I've known John for quite a few years in the political in the political sphere. And John, thanks for being on the show. Matt, it's great to be with you. Honored to be one of your inaugural uh, guests as you roll out uh, Campaign Secrets. Sounds good. So tell me a little bit about, about what you do and, and also what got you into d- being in the world of politics or the dark art of this thing? <laughs> sure. Well, what got me into it was I don't want to, you know, I still like to think of myself as a young Turk from outside the Beltway and things <laughs> like that. But right. when I first got into the business around 1992, it's hard to imagine the day, but there was so little information out there about how campaigns were run. It was almost a secret society. I mean, I think there were probably 
about a thousand people who considered themselves paid political professionals and operatives and consultants in the whole country. And so when I was going to my guidance counselor at the college I was at, and you said you were interested in government um, or, or politics, they would give you three career options, teaching. My parents were teachers. They didn't want me to teach law. I didn't want to be a lawyer or work for the government. That just didn't sound that interesting to me. There was no West Wing at the time, for instance. And so I didn't think there were any ways to pursue a political and, you know, my dad was a history teacher, political, historical passion that wasn't one of those areas. There was no talking head TV. You didn't see a, this is pre-James Carville or Carl Rove or somebody being on TV. And so it was just a secret society. And so I just kept asking people over and over again, because I was just, all my college contemporaries were going into pharmaceutical sales. And that sounded like a nightmare to me, no disrespect <laughs> to the, our, my, my friends in pharmaceutical sales. But, um, um, and so I just kept asking people and somebody said, well, maybe a lobby. And I didn't understand that. And finally a college professor of mine at Western Kentucky university gave me the business card of this guy who had just defeated David Duke in the governor's race, in Louisiana. And he said, this guy makes campaign ads for a living. And I'm like, I didn't even know that was a profession. I'd already worked in television and radio, full-time real jobs when I was 18 and 19. And I, not long after getting that business card in my hand, I, I, I kind of said, that's kind of what I want to do. And so I called this person 12 times um, before they called me back. Um, I didn't really realize I'd called them that many times. I just had no options I liked. So I just kept calling them like every week. And the first thing, um, I this I pick up my phone one day and this guy says, Is this John Rowley? And and I go, Yes, it is. And he goes, This is Bill Fletcher, and you must be the most persistent SOB <laughs> I've ever run into in my, my life. And so anyway, I, I kind of interned with this media consultant named Bill Fletcher. Um I worked for like a thousand bucks a month and then waited tables at night to make another thousand bucks a month for a year, you know, about seventy or eighty hours a week and Worked my way from internship into a creative collaborative position full time, and then was a business partner after a few years. And so that is my inglamorous twelfth time is the charm entry into politics. And maybe a longer answer than you were looking for. No, it's great. It's absolutely fantastic. And I, you know, I'm we're the same generation, and uh, you know, we were I think the first generation that really understood what political consulting was you know you go back to matt reese right. and some of these other things it's just it's not a it's not something that's a bit a long been around for a long time mm -hmm. and yeah, uh exactly what well, it's interesting to think back about other people that got into the business at that time and i mean the you know i work in democratic politics and the democratic party is certainly a lot more liberal and progressive than it than it was nationally mm -hmm back then. But I, but I also think about all the people I got into and they were like me, you know, they were making a thousand bucks a month or 900 bucks a month or 1200 bucks a month. And so it's interesting. A lot of the operatives are much more socialist than they were back then, but they're much better paid. I think <laughs> even when you adjust for inflation, I mean, the economy of it in a lot of places, you know, there was no health care on a lot of the campaigns. Most of them have healthcare. And so that's, you know, A, there's a lot more people involved and engaged. B, I think they're being compensated better than ever. So Right. And there are more pundits than ever before, too. So you turn on television and everybody's yeah. talking politics. Everybody's an expert on politics. 
Well, that's kind of a pet peeve. I mean, I, I've done some of that too, so maybe I'm part of the problem, but uh, I try to do it sparingly. I think one of the challenges is, and it's what I find, I get invited to be on TV all the time, but it takes a lot of time. And I mean, I've worked on four or 500 campaigns. I think the problem is you see a lot of people, D and R, on screen talking, and they've not even been involved in four or five right. campaigns. And they, you know, they're a lobbyist in Washington or whatever. And so I think one of the problems with conventional wisdom, I think it's why, you know, the conventional wisdom about Biden was off, about Trump was off, why the conventional wisdom is always off, um, is you've got a lot of people who've never really dealt with the beginning, middle and end of a campaign. And you've got a lot of journalists and pundits diagnosing what just happened as opposed to having any understanding of what will happen in the future. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, one of the, some of my friends that, in, in D.C. or New York or, uh, you know, both sides of the coast. I know when Donald Trump announced, you know, they, they all laughed. And I and I I'm on the record saying at the very at the very beginning of the day he had his press conference, I said, you know, he's he's probably going to get the Republican nomination. He has a really good chance of winning uh, because mm-hmm. unfortunately, but, but the way he communicates, the way people, I think, would, would view him. And, you know, we're from the same neck of the woods and. I just, he was like a black swan and he sounded different than other politicians. And it was, you know, I knew that that would cut through. Well, and and I think the, the other thing is, is politics, I mean, kind of like sports or uh, horse racing and, and whatnot. I mean, it's not a perfectly predictive business, especially when you're not working on it. I don't claim to be an expert prognosticator. I claim to be someone who's pretty good at affecting a race when I'm working on it, not prognosticating one when I'm not. I mean, it's very hard to do that. And uh, I mean, I think about 2016, I wrote a piece for Huffington Post where I kind of did what you did. I walked through from one of the research I've seen why I thought Trump was going to win when these are, everybody was saying he mm-hmm. wouldn't. But at the same time, I don't know that I predicted the Bernie Sanders effect. I think I've got a good right. understanding now of why that happened. But I, I think I was dead on about the Republican primary. And ironically, I think I probably underestimated, um, you know, the the angst uh, among Democrats in 16 for Hillary or the passion people were going to uh, have for Bernie in 16. And uh, so anyway, so there's there's our indictment of the pundit class. <laughs> so that's a good way to kick off things. When you started being a, a political consultant for Democrats you know, in the South, Democrats had the majority in a lot of these state houses. Uh, they certainly mm-hmm. did in Kentucky, and I think they did in Tennessee. So, I mean, you were right there on the the battle lines of of all of that, where it switched over from D to R, where you know Democrats who had you know been long time incumbent congressmen that you worked for, or you know people mm-hmm. that had state state senate seats, state rep seats that had never gone Republican. Uh, flipped. What do you? Um, what were some of the successes and some of the failures during that era that we can look back on to say, as Democrats, this is what happened and what we could do going forward? Right, right. And this is what we're going to spend the next two hours on, right? <laughs> <Just this time. laughs> well, it's. I mean, it's interesting for for the early part of my career. Uh, we really had the reputation for you know winning really tough races, whether it's a somebody in a primary who's 30 or 40 points behind for Congress and wins or in really red places, you know, Tennessee or Kentucky or Mississippi or red parts of Ohio, Florida, California, et cetera. So kind of the red 
red to blue was a little is a big part of our model for a while. I mean, these days it's a horrible business model because there's just fewer and fewer persuadable voters in the right. red and blue places and even the purple places. Um, so um, the, I mean, on a, I mean, it's not my original thought. I mean, a lot of the realignment began with the civil rights act uh, that Lyndon Johnson. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of ways to trace, you know, kind of racial changes. Um, and, uh, and as, as the, um, African-Americans and non-white voters align much, much more closely with our party. And then, you know, I think um, the, uh, I, I think some of it, I'm not sure anybody has totally explained how, how, how tribal and hyper-partisan we've come from 65 to 2020 um, and, um, and how we've gone from a, a party that was, you know, made up of uh, a lot of just kind of blue collar white voters to where that's the bane of Democrats existence and how, you know, Republican, some of the thought leadership out of the Republican party used to come out of the Northeast and, you know, a Republican can't win a dog catcher race if they existed mm -hmm. in the, in the Northeast. There are, there's nothing, there are no Rockefeller Republicans now. And right. and then probably 15 years ago, I represented more, quote unquote, blue dog Democrats than anybody in the country, at least around Congress and state legislatures. And there's just, there's very few real blue dogs anymore. And um, both parties' ideological tents have gotten smaller, not bigger. I mean, the, the good thing on the Democratic side is that it's a much more diverse coalition in terms of women and, and uh having, you know, more Latinos and African-Americans and just a diverse group of people. The challenge is ideologically, I think both sides have gotten less, a little less diverse. And, uh, um, I mean, there's, there are no, they're, they're just, there's just less ideological diversity now. And I mm -hmm. don't know, you know, it, it aligns with my belief system. I'm not sure if it aligns to a permanent majoritarian party, not fiscally conservative Democrats or pro-gun or pro-life Democrats. I mean, hey, it aligns with my personal views. I just don't know if we want to try to win a seat in, in uh, rural slash suburban Ohio or uh, Missouri or Colorado, if, if that's the if that's where our candidates need to be or not. And uh, for, for the long term, I mean, listen, we're in the middle of a wave. It's looking pretty good at the congressional level. But I mean, I think we ought to be in the business of, you know, trying to um, trying to win. And I know, you know, I'm, I have a democratic perspective as like a Democrat or a Republican. I have this perspective of win and hang on and govern, lead and make a difference over a long period of time, not a, you know, couple cycle mm -hmm. period. And, you know, I think another one of the problems in, in red places um, on the, on the democratic side is, you know, I think, you know, there's still a lot of our party is in the Washington to New York corridor. And, uh, a lot, of, a lot of people in that corridor just find middle America very, um, you know, uh, inconvenient to deal with. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, so, uh, anyway, I mean, there's no way to a long-term majoritarian rule without, you know, I mean, there's, there are some Virginia, Pennsylvania, um, Massachusetts, Illinois, very middle American places that are, that are important, even though those are pretty 
um, blue areas right now. And so I think um, there's this psychosis of, you know, not being able to really want to include or understand, you know, all of the country. I think it's a challenge. Certainly, it's certainly not the party leaderships, but I think when when you live or the party leadership, but when so many people just spend a lot of their time either in the Beltway or New York, it's it's an unreal experience that leads to, you know, only wanting candidates that look like you and thinking Donald Trump has zero chance of winning. And if you, you there there are polls of media and consultants of both parties, and there's like, you know, there was like two, three, four percent of people that thought Trump could win. And, mm-hmm. uh, so I think it's um, so I, I think that's another thing that's going on. And uh, um, so, I mean, the other thing is the Southeast has incredible growth happening right now and will continue to. And so there's going to be a chance for a another realignment as a lot of people migrate to the Southeast. Mm-hmm. Like I live in Nashville. One of the number one places people come from is Portland and Brooklyn mm-hmm. in terms of new growth. So over the next five to 15 years, you know, the Southeast is going to continue to grow and be some of the faster growing areas. And I think giving up on any part of the country doesn't feel like, feels like the antithesis of the core value of the Democratic Party, whether that's a region or rural people or whatever. And I think, uh, I think eventually there's going to be a, there'll be a sprinkling of a comeback in a lot of those areas. I think you're right. Like, so I read a stat, I know, during the South Carolina primary, if just how many people have moved into South Carolina from the Northeast. Yeah. And the Midwest. And, oh, yeah. you know, it's just totally, and I, I lived in North Carolina for a while, and I know it totally changed the politics and, and, and some of the culture in North Carolina from people moving in there, you know, with PhDs from the, you know, to the Research Triangle Park, and it's just changed their, their state. And I think you're you're absolutely right. You know, Nashville is a perfect example. And I'm close to Nashville, so I know how many people have moved down there and how different Nashville is now than 20 years ago, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. But South Carolina, that that's a state that I I think Democrats should not give up on, even in this even in this cycle. Um, yeah, I just absolutely. I just don't think you well, give I'm, up on what, it. Well, I think another through line of all this is that. I think one of the challenges, and there was a survey among the American Association of Political Consultants a while back, DR independent consultants of, hey, what party does what better? You know, fundraising and field and technology and targeting and messaging. And and the one thing everybody agreed on among the real biggest political pros, most experienced consultants in the business was that the Republicans were better at messaging. And so um, I think in, you know, in com- competitive areas, I, I just think there's a real um, uh, messaging gap there has been over time. And, and I think sadly, the whole Trump era has just probably made it made it worse because it's so hard to have message discipline against Trump by even the smartest of candidates, members of Congress, leadership and uh but I mean, just, you know, focusing on messages that is not policy papering our way to heaven. Um, and I would argue that on the Democratic side, there are three of the last um, five presidential elections that we lost <clears throat> based on messaging. Gore, Clinton in uh, 16 and Kerry in 04. And uh, we're very close, a little better messaging mm-hmm. and messengers. And, and we those are 
elections that should have been won, you know, you know, over and above whatever happened institutionally with the Supreme Court in 2000 or or uh, whatever, uh, whatever your real or conspiracy theory around 2016 is. I mean, they still should have been won with a little better messaging. And uh, um, so, I mean, one of my one of my messages is I try to train candidates all over the country and work with my own clients directly is just make everybody a little just uh, just focus on the essentialness of messaging and then be better advocates to their friends and allies as they go out and run and their organizations to just have a, a more focus on messaging. And, uh, cause I think, I think everybody knows messaging is kind of important, but until you feel it in your bones that, Hey, the other side's kicking your tail because of this, then, uh, you know, there's never really going to be change. It's kind of like, you know, until you admit you've got an addiction, <laughs> right. you know, treatment doesn't really begin. I think a lot of progressives don't really, think they have a problem. And this is on the Democratic side, progressive kryptonite. You know, I think the Republicans have their own uh, challenges that uh, are holding them back. And uh, um, one of them is in the Oval Office right now, which is a strange irony. And there will be many, many papers, books, and other things written about it over the decades to come. But you're so right about messaging. And that's really where your specialty, I think, really is. But, you know, I tell people we have all these fancy tools. We do things on digital, social. We can connect with people like never before. But what's really missing is for, is the for crap messaging that candidates have. Because all these people yep. that have these tools to show candidates, they've never worked in campaigns. They do digital. Right. <laughs> they do social media. They right. have not. They do right. not know what a message box is. They don't know what how to do twenty-seven words. You know, six seconds, three points. They don't know that sort of thing. Yeah. So if you don't get the messaging right, then you're just wasting your money and all the fancy tools. Whether it's texting, which is you know such a big thing now, and that's great, but it's a tool. Messaging is what it comes right. back to. And how do you make the correct, how do you craft the correct message for that platform? And I think that's so important. And again, it's so missing. And, and what we have to fundamentally go back to if you're going to fundraise, you got to have messaging. If you want to get your message out, you got to have messaging. So what do you do with yep. candidates or businesses or folks when, when, you, when you meet with them and walk through how they should put together the message? Well, I mean, one one of the biggest parts of the process is a discovery and prescript, prescribing, um, diagnosing process before you get to the prescribing process. And um, the, uh, I mean, in in the consulting world and the ad agency world, you know, in the expert for hire world, there's always a model of you get brought in to help somebody, and the first thing you do is is you tell them everything that's wrong. Therefore you know, g- giving them a number of reasons to need you more. And, um, and so, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's some of that anyway, people are looking for advice, but I think, I think one of the, one of the first parts of uh, the process of getting to work to help any cause or candidate or campaign is understanding what they're already doing right and what their strengths are and figuring out how to amplify those, building those up and, and then contrasting those strengths with the opposition's weaknesses, and then those two things have to be aligned with a with a third pillar of the your target audience has to be into these things. I think the um, I think on both sides, there's a lot of time spent thinking about how one side's better than the other in ways that 
frankly, voters just don't give a damn about. And, uh, you know, we have, a, we have a lot of debate, a lot of debates on what's going on, on in committees in Washington. And almost nobody in America who's persuadable is following committee work and the votes of Congress. They're, they're taking things in at such a 10,000 foot level. Um, and uh, because voters have an infinite larger attention span for youth sports in their neighborhood, the Super Bowl, the Emmys. Right. Um, as, well they, as well they should. We're nerds. We, as well they we should. Well, you know, I mean, they just do. I mean, I like to say, don't fight the human brain. Don't right. fight brain science on this. You know, people only have so much attention span and can only remember so many things at one time. And, uh, and this isn't a, an argument to dumb things down into generic platitudes, but it's an, it's an argument to meet, meet voters and who you're trying to reach where they are. And uh, so I think there, I think there's a way to do that in a, in a clear, wet, persuasive, emotional way without, um, you know, maybe becoming what you hate about the political process or maybe the other, uh, other side and how they do things. Gotcha. You know, I'm, I've always been a fan of direct marketing and I just think that a lot of what works in politics is, it, are, are those candidates that that understand some direct marketing tools? And Donald Trump is a perfect example of that. Everything he does is direct mm-hmm. marketing, and it, and it works, especially when you have this fragmented society and you have all these different things coming at the voters to get their attention away. You need something that hits them over the head that makes sense to them that cuts that cuts through everything and could grab them. And I think so few Democrats. And I think that's one of the the things that Bernie Sanders did very well is have a simple message, right. you know, have a really simple message that makes sense to a lot of people that people can get around. You know, you campaign in poetry and you govern in prose. And I think Democrats yeah. do the opposite. You know, we like to have our 20 point yeah, plan. One, one. And, and Bernie, if nothing else is like a message consistency case. Yes. Study because I, I haven't found too many things that he said dramatically different over the last four or five years. It's all just kind of, it's, it's kind of a great basic tenet of messaging like him or not of you find new ways to deliver the same old message. He, he didn't use the same over and over again. You know, he didn't do what I call the Al, Al Gore lockbox trap of saying lockbox, right. lockbox, lockbox <laughs> <laughs> over and over again. He, he found 20 new ways to communicate lockbox with different words. And so, um, so it's a message consistency success story in its own way. If you consider where he was five years ago and where he is, where he is now. And, and even, uh, even, even his but, votes with the NRA and things like that, he, he handled it, he handled it very well, by just saying they are bad votes. You know, I didn't yeah. try to explain it too much more than that. Of course, all of us, we know he's, you know, Vermont is a rural area. You cannot be yeah. a Democrat elected in most rural areas and be anti-gun. You know, that just doesn't yeah. just doesn't work. And I, I know a lot of my friends don't understand that. <laughs> they don't live in those areas. Um, but well, and he I, I think that's well. I think that's I think that's a great issue that demonstrates a lot of these points. I mean, I think uh, I mean, personally, I'm pretty I mean, I grew up in a rural part of Illinois, but I'm, I'm I personally have pretty pinko views of <laughs> what gun laws ought to be in this country. But um, I think I think the way gun messaging is done just becomes so condescending to people who are in the middle. I mean, if you think about it, I, I think a big part of your audience 
is a middle American female audience who probably has relatives who hunt. And I think a lot of the messaging that gets done becomes very condescending and, and preachy. Um, and I'm, I'm on their side. I just, I just think you're, I've, I've never been in a room, a meeting, met anybody. I've never been in any circumstance or witnessed it in life or in a movie where someone likes being condescended to. If you've no. run across it, please, <laughs> please share it with me. And so I, th- I think this condescending messaging, a lot of, a lot, of, I mean, both sides probably do it. I think, I think the um, kind of the Northeastern progressives do it the best. And, and I think the, I think there've been some big challenges around um gun uh safety on that and i think i think the other challenge in the social media age it's hard to keep control of your messaging even if like bloomberg's group or some other gun safety group has their messaging down they've got a hundred to a thousand activists out there that are frothy and aren't on aren't on uh on point of you know maybe not doing some sort of condescending messaging and uh, just to kind of get that out of control. And, uh, so, uh, so anyway, I mean, I think there's a, uh, um, I think there's tremendous opportunity there, but I mean, we've been through so many, I've been through so many shootings and politics and we haven't seen a dramatic change in terms of legislation. Now we've finally seen a change in who's getting elected. I mean, up mm-hmm. until the last couple cycles, I mean, going against the NRA in middle America was political death. So I think we have seen a turn. And so is it going to take two years or is it going to take 12 years to finally get that to hit at the legislative level, I think is the the question, especially nationally. Well, I just think the Democrats also, from where we're from, do, still do not understand how to talk about it and are way too afraid to even touch the issue at all, that they try to go far mm-hmm. to the right. I mean, I I don't know too many people in my world that are, you know, the people that are not political that, you know, but you know, maybe vote Republican a lot, but, you know, maybe vote Democrat on local issues. But almost everybody will say, you know, if you, if you tell them, give them an issue, say, listen, I don't want to take away your Second Amendment rights, but don't tell me we can't get you know get machine guns out of the hand of criminals. We can do both of those things. Yeah. People agree with that. Mm-hmm. People absolutely agree with that, and and paint your opponent that doesn't want to do anything as the radical. And I just think right. we have so few Democrats running for Congress or other areas that even want to touch that issue or abortion, you know, yeah. and to not bring yeah. it up or to try to outright you know the right wingers that that doesn't work either. And right. uh, I just right. uh, abortion that that just kills me because we have so many Democrats running for state legislatures like, oh, I got to be, you know, I, I do believe that a woman should have the right to choose if it's her life's, you know, uh, at stake. Well, fine. Then bring that up and say, well, your opponent is so radical in their view that they don't even want, you know, if a woman's life is at stake to have that choice. Yeah. Democrats right. don't even want to paint the Republican. They say, well, if we even bring up that issue, then it's bringing it up and it's on their their side of the field. I think with messaging, you got to play on their side of the field. You got to, you got to, the things that are your weaknesses, you also kind of have to hang a lantern on and, and bring it up and take yeah. that issue away from the other side. Well, I think, um, I think sometimes it makes sense to lean into controversial areas. Sometimes it doesn't, but I think sitting around, um, you know, just, uh, denying that it's, it's a big factor. I mean, I think in, in yeah. really red areas, I mean, de- I mean, a lot of Democrats, I train them on messaging and they don't want to talk about fiscal issues. You know, mm-hmm. they, 
I mean, almost everything we talk about has a financial component to it, even I think in in uh, one of the budgets for National Institute of Health for gun safety for the first time in decades. So it's like even gun, even the gun issue has a fiscal component mm-hmm. to it, one way or another. And and to sit around and know that uh, the other side's playbook on page three is tax and spend liberal, and now now it's tax and spend liberal socialist, and to not factor in, hey, how we fund things and our priorities is a is a big part of our messaging. So I just, you know, I mean, I, I'm just a big per, big believer in not living in denial of what the, either what the other side's going to do. I mean, it's the old boxing thing. Some attribute it to Jack Dempsey or Mike Tyson. Everybody's got a plan until they get hit in the face. That's right. So, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so anyway. Well, what do you, uh, how do you see 2020 shaping up? I mean, we're in a weird time right now. What are you telling, what are you telling candidates how to get their message out? Right. Well, the first of all is in this unprecedented coronavirus time, I think, um, I mean, A, nobody's exactly dealt with anything like it, but the experiences we've had around, hey, how do you campaign after the Oklahoma City bombing? How do you Mm -hmm. campaign after 9-11? How do you campaign or govern or lead after a tornado or a hurricane and whatnot, the financial crisis? I mean, one of the tenets of communications and that um, circumstance, whether you want to think about it as crisis communication or whatnot, is I mean, there's a few things we've we've learned. You know, this is no time to like be a political strategist, you know, and try to like manipulate the situation to your benefit. If you're in office, do the right things to help people. Do the do the right things within your power to cut through the red tape of government or be responsive to constituents to get the word out about public health about changes in election dates, about, um, and so doing the, doing the right thing is good politics in a crisis like this. So that's, mm-hmm. that's job one. I think the, I think the tone and tenor of this, and I think you see a lot of incumbent Democrats around the country, I think just hitting this out of the park. And we've, we've kind of been, we kind of ragged on the left a little bit in this, but I think a lot of the incumbents from Congress to, uh, congressional leadership to what state legislative leadership to governors have hit this out of the park in terms of what I'm talking about, in terms of the tone and tenor of everything they put out, governor of, of New York, Cuomo, governor of Michigan, a lot of other folks, it's been really public service announcement tenor. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm not trying to grandstand and make political hay out of this. It's like, Hey, these are the health problems. This is the information people need. These are the financial problems. This is the, what we need from the federal government. Um, so I think that tone and tenor of being at service to the public, as opposed to what we see out of the White House, just, I mean, grandstanding, you know, every day. I mean, I think by last count, a week or two ago, in Trump's press conferences, 116 times he had given himself a personal review that yeah. he had been doing a great job or some sort of superlative job. And so, um, it's just amazing. I, I just think, yeah, I just think he's violating every, every, almost every rule of, of crisis leadership from a practical standpoint, he's probably doing a number of smart things in terms of getting his message out. I mean, leadership in my judgment, he fails day in and, day out. There was just a, I think it was the Wall Street Journal had a piece about what makes a great leader in a time of crisis. 
and they honed in on humility and they would <laughs> talk about Nelson Mandela and all these other people. I mean, so, and, and also the humility to know there are things you don't know and need right. to learn and, and, and things like that. And so, I mean, he gets like a triple F rating yeah. on, on that. And so I just, I, I feel like on public leadership, he fails time and again, I think he probably hits extra bases on just, he's just willing to say anything and he, he jogs to the right or jogs to one side, jogs to the left. He's on both sides of the issues and he gives all of his on the same day, sometimes you know, at the same press conference. So, so, right. Right. Something to latch, something to latch onto. And, um, you know, I mean, just in the last hour or two, um, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, you know, there's been talk out of North Korea that they're, mm-hmm their leaders died. And yesterday Trump said that, Oh, he's on top of it. And he knows that he's healthy. He has right. no health problems. So. <laughs> well, if TMZ is reporting it, which it is right now, actually it probably is true. They're usually, <laughs> if TMZ is reporting it, that he's dead. Then yeah. Right. They actually, I'm sure, I'm sure TMZ is saved on Trump's phone as a place he regularly goes. <laughs> no, produce, doubt. So. no doubt about that. Right. So you deal with not just candidates, but also businesses. And I think you said sports figures before as well. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, we, we do some political work or marketing and advertising work and then, and then a decent amount of crisis communication work as well in in and outside of politics. And sometimes, you know, um, walking the line between the two of entities trying to get things done and the, private nonprofit sector or government sector. Do you recommend it's something I've always thought, you know, if, if a candidate or a business, if you know that there's problems out there that could be brought up to, you know, to have kind of a war room type situation where you bring everything together and say, this is how we're going to respond to it. If it does bring up, if it does come out, or is right. it usually better to bring it out yourself? I mean, I'm sure it kind of depends on what that is, but it always seems to me in personal life, or in politics, if you can bring it up yourself, it's better to do that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, I think, I think the first part of crisis communication as, you know, beware of, beware of a formula that worked for somebody else. And so there's always, you know, the, the scabs that you have or the, or the uh, uh, speck in your eye <laughs> is always uh, a little different than the, a speck in somebody else's eye and in a different circumstance. So, I mean, I think the, I, I think the, uh, uh, I mean, the one tenet is I think you want to drive as much of the storyline as you can now, you know, get it, get it, get it out early, get it out often. Definitely used to be an old PR tenant of crisis management, mm-hmm. but um, I, I just don't think that's a, I don't think it's a rule of thumb for every instance. Um, you know, that's certainly not how Bill Clinton survived the impeachment. I mean, he didn't tell the story on himself. No, no. <laughs> and so I think there's always there's always a da- there's always a danger of you you uh, generate a story when it wasn't going to happen. And and honestly, in this day and age, we just have fewer and fewer media outlets that are funded with investigative people. And so unless you have an adversary who's going to get it out on you, um, so, um, but, but at the same time, but at the same time, the level of 
checking facts and the level of redundancy before a story hits is so low now. You don't have people in the newsroom saying, well, you know, we have to get three sources on this. They just freaking run with it a lot of times. Yeah, yeah. no, that's, that's absolutely true. If it's inevitable, something's going to get out. There's depth. You, 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 whoever is breaking the story impacts the storyline. If you break it on yourself, if it's inevitable, it's going to come out. Mm-hmm. It, politics, somebody outside of politics, it definitely makes sense to drive it first. And therefore the story, you look, you always look less guilty. And, um, and, uh, and, and then you're also guaranteed to be in the first story. I mean, the too many, uh, too many people, they use criminal defense attorney rules of PR, which is mm-hmm. not to comment. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's, and it's like, I, it, one, one thing I've noticed and because, you know, most real big communications crises, you have a legal component to it. Um, whether, whether, whether there's an actual civil or criminal thing, you usually have a, a lawyer involved. Now you sometimes have a technology person, whether it's a, online and social media member of the team or a true cybersecurity IT member of the team. And then there's usually a communications uh, leg of the school, leg of the stool. But I've, I've always noticed that a warrior never gets fired for giving bad PR advice. And so, <laughs> and, uh, and your political strategist or your communications person, you know, doesn't usually doesn't try to give legal advice. And uh, right. so, um, you know, w- lawyers can't drive a PR strategy. I think there's also two types of crises. Typically there's ones that have imminent regulatory um, death penalties, you know, of, you know, someone's going to get fired. Someone's going to be in civil or criminal jeopardy. And so in those instances, the lawyers kind of do have the trump card in the strategy the communications people have to shape a comm strategy internally and externally around what's happening legally. But if you have a pure comms problem, like I had a pro football player who had been, you know, had a, uh, uh, and a, a kind of a, a false accusation against him. And we were confident we had video evidence that, you know, not, whatever he was accused of was, you know, had not happened. So we were very confident in our, um, you know, criminal civil standing in the matter that was a communications problem. And so in that instance, I think the comms and communication strategy team trumps a little bit what the legal team wants to do. Cause we just don't have as much jeopardy. And, and if you're a NFL player, if you're not going to um, lose a lawsuit or go to go to jail and you think your case will be dismissed, you really have a problem with communications because the league is very focused on, you know, you get in trouble Right. Um, I mean, you, you get kicked out of the league. <laughs> right. And uh, this this particular person had about $11 million roster bonus. We help them hang on to. But um, the uh, but yeah, so it's I think the uh, um, uh, you know, we have to we have to understand case studies and whatnot. But it's it's almost uh, impossible to apply one crisis case study to another. And just like it's impossible to to rubber stamp a, a campaign plan from one campaign to another, you know, 80 to 90% of the dynamics are the same, but there's always something that's a little bit different. Gotcha. Well, John, thanks for being here. And one last question I got to have for you. If, if you were running for Congress or even the state legislature, what, what's just the top three things you ought to be doing when you make that decision? 
Well, I, I think uh, I think one thing, one one of, one of the ingredients that is the most unspoken thing in campaigns is hunger factor. And I think that the sort of candidates that win the races they maybe should lose, um, that eke out wins, um, that do do really exceptional things, maybe when victory is not guaranteed, they've got that hunger. I like to say some of my worst clients have been the undefeated ones, you know, the ones mm-hmm. that never lost a race before I met yeah. them because they don't know that because they all believe they have a magic touch if they've never lost a race. And so right. that hunger factor and also in who you put around you. And, um, I think the, whether it's a consulting team, a staff team, some of your advisors, I mean, people who are motivated and hungry, I will take every day of the week over, over the, the kind of the silk stocking crew that is, you know, the best lawyers, advisors that, that are the most successful and are fat, dumb and happy. I mean, so that hunger factor is, is critical. I mean, on, on day one of a, of a campaign, I'm a big believer that somebody should have three things in place. This is more practical advice. Number one, you ought to have a budget in place because you're, because a lot of people talk about strategy. Nobody puts any form to strategy. Your budget's your strategy. And so on day one, have a budget of how much you need and why you need it. And and then that informs fundraising because you need to have a list of your closest allies and what's your range of high and low that you can get resources from. And honestly, if if you can't uh, pinpoint some good starter capital on day one, you maybe need to reevaluate whether you run or not. Um, right. I got a quick story about that. I'll tell you about. And then the other is you need a message on day one. I mean, go through a SWOT analysis of your strengths and weaknesses. Your opponent or opponent's strengths and weaknesses, and at least have a first draft of a budget, a message, and a fundraising target list. I mean, if nothing else, that is due diligence. Um, anybody in any industry or any profession, whether it's nonprofit, government, or the private sector or campaigning, understands a little bit of thoughtful planning and due diligence. That's your due diligence. And so, quick, quick story. I had two congressional candidates over about a 12-month period who, who both were interested in running for Congress. And one was a guy who'd been a party chairman, had a small business, had prepared his whole life to run for Congress. It was his dream. And so I made him go through that fundraising targeting process, and he came up with $45,000 he could raise in the first 60 to 90 days from his network. And I had to go back and I'd say, man, that's not even good state house money, not to mention mm-hmm. running for Congress money. If you don't get to that first 100 or 200 quickly, you won't get to the half a million and it just becomes a snowball effect. Then I had another person who, who frankly on paper was less than impressive, but a longtime friend and a small business owner. And she was a military veteran and had, had done some interesting things, great profile, but didn't really strike me as a sort of person who could do a lot, but she went through the process of, Hey, who are my top 50 to a hundred friends and fans? What's the high and low I can raise or they can raise. And it was like Mm $270,000 and she accidentally raised like 40,000 and just reaching out to them and having some preliminary conversations. I don't think she deposited the money or anything, but you know, people like started writing her checks and I'm like, okay, well, this is somebody who can get there. And, Mm -hmm. uh, so, I, I mean, I would say one out of 10 candidates I deal with has the, has the discipline to go through that. They would rather talk about strategy or polling or 
all of these things that are third and fourth quarter of the campaign process as opposed to one month before you get into the campaign or year or two before you get into the campaign process. So um, I don't know that that is a sexy or glamorous response to your question, but based on, you know, hundreds of races and hundreds of successes and a number of failures that I will and won't talk about, that's, uh, <laughs> I think, I think there's a lot there. No, I think that is perfect advice, a perfect advice to end on because candidates need to know what it's like and they need to know the reality of it before going in. I mean, why would you start a business if you didn't have some idea of how you're going to get startup capital? And really a campaign is is really an entrepreneurial you know, enterprise. It's got to be looked at like yeah. that. And in every way possible, you, you're a startup company. And you and yeah, we're absolutely. in a startup company. Why would you take the leap of starting that company if you have not a clue as how you're going to get to that first level of funding before you even ask anybody else for money? It's just, it's uh, it's bizarre that people think this will just magically happen. You got to have a plan and you got to work the plan and be disciplined with it. Yeah, well, and you, I mean, you don't have to have the total plan before you run, but just, I mean, to have some basics in order and this. Right. Just make certain assumptions that people know who they are and have a few things they they care about and you know their soul is somewhat intact. But uh, you know, I I don't know how to give advice about <laughs> about things like that. And uh, but um, anyway. Well, John, thank you for being a guest, and I think you gave great information. I think the listeners are really good going to take a lot from it. And if, and if anybody wants to get a hold of you, how do they get a hold of you? Sure. My, my company is counterpointmessaging.com, and uh, my email is just JR, my initials, John Rowley at counterpointmessaging.com. And uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear from anybody that's uh, got questions, or uh, I'm sure I'm sure there's something they will have disagreed with since it is politics in America <laughs> in 2020. So uh, I always like to get those as well. I've been on I've been on Fox as a Democrat a number of I know, times, and I know. I've had people. I've had pe- I've had people with my same last name who write in and say I'm a disgrace to the rally name. Oh my god! So it's like, yeah, so it's uh, it's always it's always interesting to hear from a, a wide range of people. But uh, now this is this is great. I'm glad you're leaning in, Matt, and, and uh, I think you've got a lot of other great content in the pipeline and i look forward to uh, listening going forward so rock it all right well, i'll talk to you later man want to learn more campaign secrets want to learn how to start raising money for your campaign even during these uncertain and unpredictable times you want to know how to craft a winning campaign message then you need my free ebook campaign fundraising secrets head on over to campaignfundraisingsecrets.com now Put in your name and email and you can download a copy of this easy to read and implement guide. While you're there, sign up for your free seven day campaign secrets challenge. It'll walk you through how to campaign in the middle of this crisis, creating your fundraising system, crafting a great campaign message, and much, much more. I hope you learned a lot today and I'll see you next time on the Campaign Secrets Podcast. Take care.